It's the New Testament, book of John, chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. Hear the word of the Lord. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, he purposed to go into Galilee and found Philip and Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together as we get into John. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the way that you gently and tenderly shepherd us with your word. And uh, Lord, even for the times when your rod strikes us in what seems not to be so gentle of a manner. Uh, Lord, your correction, your rebuke, your reproof, your training us in righteousness through your word is what we long for. It's what we want. We want to be more conformed to the image of Christ. And we know that being conformed to his image requires pressure. It requires trial. It requires uh, even pain and sorrow and mourning. Lord, we trust that you will do your perfect work in each one of our lives. You will bring us to that day of Christ Jesus, and you will complete the good work that you've begun in every single one of your children. Lord, and that is our great hope. Your faithfulness is our hope, not our faithfulness to you. Your faithfulness to us, your faithfulness to your own will, 
Lord, your devotion and dedication to see your name glorified through a redeemed people in your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Father, that's what we rest in. Lord, I pray that the Mathwitz family and that Pat Bickner and the Vandenbrandens would be able to rest in your sovereign care. through this very difficult time or for purposes that only you know you took Joanna at a very young age and I pray you would help the family trust in you Lord and trust in you enough with their wife daughter sister aunt granddaughter niece to trust you enough with her to keep moving forward in faith. Father, we pray that your blessing would be on our service tomorrow. and uh, It would be a time of healing and a time of even rejoicing in the gospel of Christ and the great hope that we have in the name of Jesus that is not defeated by death, that cannot be undone by sin. Lord, give us grace and hope to mourn well and to keep our eyes fixed upon you. Lord, bless our time in your word. Please let the burden of this passage come forth, not my own thoughts. And God, please nourish the hearts of your children this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are back in the Gospel of John, and I hope that the measure of corporate amening at the end of that prayer is not the measure of engagement that will uh, attend us this morning as we get back into, into the Word of God. Today we're going to turn, uh, as we turn to the Gospel of John, we're going to look at the last verses of chapter 1. I thought we were going to get through the, uh, the whole section, but as is often the case, I was proven wrong. I was proven wrong yesterday. In this last chapter, what we're really coming to is the heart of what I believe to be the introduction to the rest of the Gospel of John. So the introduction of the book, really the heart of it is really contained here in these verses at the end of chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. As we saw last time we were in John, um, in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34, John the Baptist has already announced the arrival of God's Lamb, right, the one whom God had promised would bring salvation to the world, John the Baptist had already announced his appearing. When Jesus had appeared the day prior to the passage we're looking at today, John the Baptist beheld him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This was the public proclamation and announcement that the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah and promised Messiah, had finally arrived. John identified that Messiah as Jesus. And on the heels of that account, here in the Gospel of John, we find 
an account of these first disciples who began to follow Jesus as the Lamb of God. And in this account of these first disciples, we find how God expects all of us to respond to the truth about his son. What God wants from us is very simple. In light of who Jesus is, God invites us to come to Jesus. And in coming to Jesus, to see him as God's saving lamb for ourselves. What I mean by that is to come to him ourselves and to see him for ourselves. Now, we understand what it means to come to Jesus. Most of us understand what that's getting at. That's talking about believing in him. That's talking about approaching him by faith, right? That we must come to him if we're going to be received by him. If we're going to be saved by Jesus Christ, we've got to come. But whenever we're talking about seeing him, this is the invitation that kind of uh, happens at least a couple of times through this passage. We see it, this wording twice. We see Jesus telling these two disciples, come and see. And then we see another disciple going to someone else and saying, come and see. This is really the invitation to come and follow Jesus Christ. We understand what coming means, but whenever we're talking about seeing, in this context, we're talking about something more than simply seeing with our physical eyes. What we're getting at here, or what John is getting at, what the Spirit of God is getting at in these verses, is really gaining a spiritual perception through personal experience of Jesus Christ. So we must come to Jesus, but we also must see him if we're going to be saved by him. That is the invitation of the entire Gospel of John, really. We're going to see this come up over and over again as we walk through the rest of this Gospel. Not merely to submit to Jesus, not merely to accept Jesus, but to come to him. To come to Christ and to see him as the true Lamb of God for ourselves. To taste and see his goodness ourselves. Now that invitation, as I said, appears repeatedly throughout the rest of the gospel. And in that we find something very significant about what it means to become and to continue as a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And I want you to listen to this. Have I lulled you to sleep yet? There's not one of us that can coast to heaven on the coattails of someone else's experience with Christ. You're not going to be saved because your mom or your dad were saved. Children, that's really important for you to remember. It's so important for all of us to remember. We're not saved because our grandparents were saved. We're not saved because of the family lineage or heritage into which we've been born. We've already looked at that in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, right? Those who believe in Christ were not those who were born of the flesh. They were not those who were born of the will of the flesh or the will of man. They were those who were born of God. If we are going to be among those who are saved in Christ, we cannot ride into glory upon the coattails of someone else's experience of Christ. We won't find salvation in Christ simply because John and the other apostles found salvation in Christ. We are not going to behold the glory of Christ and see him as the glorious one for ourselves just because John saw him as the glorious one. 
We cannot hope in Christ in that way as the glorious one unless we have come ourselves to see him as that glorious one and as the one who is worthy of our faith. The substance of true discipleship really gets at this. This is how discipleship is begun, and this is how discipleship is continued. To be a disciple of Christ, you must come to him, and you must see him with the eyes of your own heart, and you must believe in him yourself. Now, we see this very clearly when we look at the way these first disciples came to be followers of Christ. Their conversions were not the same, Right? Christ did not approach each one of these disciples the same. Neither was their response exactly the same to Christ's approach to them. But there is one thing that's common to all of their conversions, and that was the fact that each one of these disciples, these five disciples that are talked about here in this passage, each one of them came to be disciples of Christ through having personal experience with Christ. This is something everyone who professes to be a believer in Christ must understand. True discipleship requires that you have personal acquaintance with the living Lord Jesus Christ. And there's only one way to get that. And that is for you to come to Christ and to see him for yourself. So in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51, we have the account of how five of Christ's disciples came to be his followers. Only four of them are mentioned by name, but the ones that are mentioned by name, we have Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And what I want to do this morning is begin to look at how these men became disciples of Christ and to draw from their experiences important lessons that you and I need to take to heart. Now, despite what your outlines say, it's uh, one reason why I don't do outlines, because I never really know where we're going, honestly, until Saturday. I don't know how far we're going to get. Uh, but on your outlines, you have all four of those disciples mentioned. We're not going to, or you have five disciples there, but four different uh, main points. We're only going to get through the first main point today. So we'll come back to the rest next week. But um, today we're just going to focus on that, that first one, the two disciples of John the Baptist. And there are three things that we're going to look at uh, in, from this account of these two disciples. Two of the things we're going to look at are things that are necessary in order to become a true follower of Jesus Christ. And then the third thing we're going to look at is what results from becoming a true follower of Christ. So you have two elements that are required in order to become a follower of Christ, and then you have an inevitable result, something that is going to happen. It will take place as a result of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus. So that's where we're going. Number one, the first thing we see in this passage in regard to these two disciples is that in order to be a follower of Christ, you have to have a right response to Christ. That is, you must come to Jesus if you would see Jesus. Look with me at John chapter 1, verses 35 through 37. It opens by saying, and again on the next day, this is the next day being the third day of this one-week time period that we're looking at, right? That time period, it runs from John 1.19 down through chapter 2, verse 11. That's covering a time period of one week. This is the third day in that week. 
And uh, it says there, on the next day, on the third day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, from the context, what it seems like what's happening is this is the day after John has announced Jesus to be the Messiah. Here, this next day, all of a sudden, it seems as though Jesus is leaving. He's walking away from John. He's come to John. He's been announced by John, but now he's departing from John. And as John beholds Jesus leaving, as he's walking away, it's as if there's this desperate cry for all the followers who are around John to behold the Lamb who is walking right there. Behold him. There he is. And there just happened to only be two disciples standing with John. Now, this is a significant moment in redemptive history, far more significant than what we often perceive when we're reading through this gospel. John's entire ministry was designed for one purpose, to prepare the people to receive and to believe in the one who was coming after him. At this point in John's ministry, that purpose has been realized. John was no longer preparing people to meet someone who was going to come after him. Now he was pointing at someone who had already come. And in verse 37, when these two disciples heard John's message change from he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, to he's here, he's here, and there he is. When these two disciples heard that change in John's message, they responded in the only way that was appropriate. They began to follow Jesus. Now, we need to understand something about what it means for these disciples to follow Jesus. When they were beginning to do that, we need to understand that they weren't just ho-humming along, walking behind Jesus and just following in his footsteps. That's not what it meant for them to follow Jesus. They weren't just walking behind him. This is really what we might consider to be an Elijah-Elisha moment. You remember when Elijah walked by Elisha and threw his coat upon Elisha, all of a sudden Elisha, after some preps, after some preparations, he left everything behind and began to follow and attend Elijah. That's kind of what we have going on here. We have Jesus walking by these disciples, and in a way, he's casting his mantle upon them through the ministry of John the Baptist. And here these disciples are responding the way that Elisha responded. They are beginning to follow Jesus. What that means is that when they began to follow Jesus, they were self-consciously making the decision to become disciples of Jesus. Just like, in Math, just like Matthew, in Matthew 9.9, when Jesus came, he was sitting in the tax booth, he said, Matthew, here's what I want from you. I want you to come follow me. What did Matthew do? He got up from the tax booth, he left it all behind, and he began following Jesus. Or even here in this passage, when Jesus calls Philip in John chapter 1, verse 43, Jesus comes to Philip and he says, follow me. That is, I want you to follow me. I want you to become my disciple. And Philip responds by doing so. That's what these two disciples of John were doing. They were deliberately choosing to lay aside their commitment to be disciples of John in order to submit themselves as disciples of Jesus. All right. Now, right there we find the first step of true discipleship for anyone. As I've already said, you must respond to the truth about Jesus by actually making the decision to follow Jesus. That is, in light of the truth about who Jesus is, 
you must actually make the choice to get up from where you are and go follow him. You must rise up from your tax booth like Matthew. You must leave behind your other teachers like these two disciples. You must leave behind your old life and actually practically follow Jesus forward as your new rabbi, as your teacher, as your master. And here, even now, guys, listen to me. Even here and now, Jesus is walking by us. The invitation, in other words, is going out to each one of us here and now. Come and see him. Are you coming to him? Imagine what would have happened if when Jesus was walking by these disciples, they had not gotten up and followed him. What would have happened if these men had not made a choice to get up and run after Jesus? What do you think would have happened? They'd be in hell. Who said that? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. He would have left them He would have left them where they were, and he would have gone on. Now listen, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe in God's sovereignty and salvation. I believe in election. I believe in predestination. But I also recognize that in the word, God's sovereignty confronts us with commands. His sovereignty comes upon us with choices that we are being beckoned to make. He comes to us with decisions that need to be made, and he commands us. You remember this language from 1 Kings 18. He commands us to stop limping between two opinions. If God is God, then our responsibility is to choose to serve him, to follow him. If you and I would be saved, and if we would become true disciples of Christ, then my friend, we must get up from wherever we're sitting and take steps forward to chase Jesus down. How many of you remember that when you were saved? Do you remember when you were first awakened to the reality of who Christ is and the reality of what you are in yourself? And what you deserve before the judgment, of, judgment seat of God. When you remember being awakened to the reality of being a sinner in the presence of a holy God. And the terrifying element that is involved in that. Knowing that you have no excuse to offer him in and of yourself. You have nothing to give over to God that would cause him to want to save you. All you have is the filth of your own sin. And then you see Jesus as the only remedy for you to be saved. And you flee after Him. There was no limping between two decisions when you were awakened to the truth of Christ. You were awakened to the reality of yourself as a sinner. You were awakened to the reality of Christ as the perfect Savior. And you flee to Him for refuge. Fled. You fled to Him for refuge. If you and I would be saved, 
anyone in here is not saved, and you would be saved, you must run to Jesus Christ. You cannot sit there and wait for someone else to bring you. You got to come. Now, what did it mean to follow Christ? What does it mean for us to follow Christ? Well, in the scriptures, we find that that involves many things. In fact, Jesus, throughout the rest of his earthly ministry, he describes what it means to follow him in many different ways. He describes it as learning from his teaching. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? It means that you discipline yourself to be a learner at the feet of Christ. It means that you are one who is not only learning, but obeying his will. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet do not do what I say, Jesus says. In order to be a disciple, you must be obedient to what Christ is commanding us to do. It means being a disciple of Christ means abiding in Christ and holding fast to him in faith. It means submitting to him as Lord and keeping his commandments. It means turning from every manifestation of sin in your life and taking up your cross daily and following Jesus to death. It means putting to death the deeds of the body so that in Christ Jesus you might live. Jesus is going to make all of that clear throughout his ministry. That following him is not something that's merely done in the heart and in the mind. It's something that has hands and feet to it. It involves governing our emotions. It involves renewing our minds. It involves correcting our motives. And it, it involves embracing heartfelt repentance and faith. All of that is involved in becoming a true disciple of Christ. But it also involves actually walking the way that Jesus walked. It actually involves delighting ourselves and doing the will of the Father and offering up our lives, our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God in light of the mercies of Christ. That's what it means to follow him. Really, in essence, it's the concentration of our entire being. Consecration of our entire being unto him. Unto his kingdom, unto his cause, under his will, and under his desires for us. And you need to understand this. Parentheses. Everywhere where you and I are falling short of that high calling, we are falling short of biblical standards for discipleship. You need to get that. Being a disciple involves what you are actually doing and what you are not doing. Understand that. Now, with all that said... Let me say that I doubt very much that these disciples in John chapter 1 understood all of what Jesus requires from those who are following after him. I don't think that they had all of this in mind when they began following Jesus. But at the heart of it, what we see in their response to Jesus is that they got to the substance of what being a disciple is all about. In light of what they understood about Jesus, they left everything behind and decided that they would draw near to him. And I believe that is the essence of true discipleship. Behind every other manifestation of what it means to be a follower of Christ lies this simple reality. That everything we are doing is an effort and a move to draw near to Christ. You agree with that?
Everything else that we do in life ought to be simply expressing that genuine desire to be with Jesus. I wonder how many people who call themselves Christians and who regularly hear the truth about Christ proclaimed still have not yet practically and wholeheartedly actually begun to follow Jesus. If you would be Christ's disciple, it's not enough simply to hear the truth about him proclaimed. It's not enough to be able to cross the theological T's and dot the theological I's. Or even to know the truth about him, you must act on that truth if you would be his follower. You must respond to the truth of Christ with genuine sincerity and true faith. You must decide to follow Jesus Christ as Lord, as God's Lamb for you, and then take practical steps in doing so. And we have that promise of 2 Chronicles 15.2. If you seek him, he will let you find him. If that was true under the old covenant, how much more true is that for us in the fullness of the new? If we seek him, he will let us find him. So that's the first thing to notice from these two disciples. The first requirement of discipleship is the right response. When we hear the truth about Jesus, we must respond by actually coming to him. And apart from that, we cannot be his disciple. Number two, along with having a right response to the truth about Christ, we must also come to him with the right motive. So number two is the right motive. This is a second requirement. In order to be a disciple of the Lamb, you must be following him for the right reason. This one really, really got at me. Maybe, I'll, maybe the Lord will give opportunity to go into that. We've got a full message today. I'm going to try and stick to what I've prepared, but we'll see what happens. In John 1.38, when Jesus saw these two disciples following him, what did he do? He turned around, and what did he ask? What do you seek? What are you seeking? What do you seek? Now, their answer seems strange, right? Their answer back to Jesus' question, what do you seek? They said, rabbi, meaning teacher. That, and, hey, parentheses, that little thing right there where John is taking an Aramaic or Hebrew type word and then translating it into a Greek word or giving explanation behind what it means, that's just simply an indicator to us that John wrote this gospel to be read by Gentiles. Very, very, very sweet thing to, to realize when you understand all its implications, but we don't have time to go into that. What do you seek? They answered, they responded by saying, where are you staying? Now, what does that mean? Why would they be asking Jesus, where are you staying? I think it's important to understand that they weren't simply trying to find out Jesus' address. Right? They're not just trying to find out the house where he is. That's not, that's not the burden of their response or even their question. They were trying to find out where Jesus was going because they wanted to go with him. They were communicating to Jesus that their intention was to follow him wherever he went. And within that, what they were seeking in Jesus was revealed. 
Simply put, they were following Jesus because they wanted to be with Jesus. Amen? That is the test of true discipleship. Jesus asks, in following me, what do you seek? Isn't that the question that really matters for anyone who is professing to be a follower of Christ? What are you seeking in following Jesus? Isn't that ultimately what matters as far as our following after Christ is concerned? Doesn't it all hinge upon what exactly we're trying to find in Jesus? What are we seeking in following him? Now notice this. Jesus does not ask them, who are you seeking? That's fascinating. Obviously, they were seeking after him. They were following after him. And for anyone who professes to be a Christian, that will be the automatic response from them if you were to ask, who are you seeking? Well, I'm seeking Jesus. But that's not the point here that Jesus is driving at with these disciples. He's not trying to find out who they are following after, who they want to be their teacher, who they want to be their rabbi. That's already been made very clear. Now what he wants to check is what is the reasoning behind their following him? What is their motivation? If you pay attention as we work through the rest of this gospel, this question is going to be coming up over and over again. What are you seeking from Jesus. And really, it becomes one of the major tests for distinguishing between those who have true faith and those who do not have true faith. What is your motivation for seeking Jesus? Now, we see all kinds of wrong motives in the scriptures. Even here in the Gospel of John, we find wrong motives for following after Jesus. We find the motive of power and gaining status and becoming someone great or even having personal advancement. Right? Remember the, the request... Could, could we just, Lord James and John, what, what do you want from me? Well, uh, actually, they sent their mom because they weren't bold enough to ask Jesus himself. Uh, you know, Jesus, what I really want from my sons is that you would enable them to sit at your right hand and at your left hand in your kingdom. Right? What is that if it's not a, a, a desire for personal advancement? Right? right in the midst of a conversation about who, is, who are the greatest disciples, which one was the greatest? And we also find things like a wrong motive for seeking Jesus exclusively being the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. Liberation from governmental oppression. Bread to fill your bellies and a king after your own heart. Now, I think we have plenty of wrong motives in our own day that people have in seeking after Jesus. We have health, wealth, prosperity motivation. We have comfortable, successful, easy living. I don't know why. I don't know why people believe that following after Christ is going to make your life easy. I think, honestly, I think it's probably because they're not really engaged in what it means to be a follower of Christ. They're a follower in name, but they haven't yet begun to do the hard work of dying, entering into self-denial, embracing persecution, standing for the cause of Christ. So many who begin to follow Jesus do so for all the wrong reasons and all the wrong motives. And Jesus, we need to understand, Jesus will, will have none of that. We may want to accept him on the basis of these kinds of terms. I remember being in a Southern Baptist church where I was saved, 
the Lord saved me in spite of what was going on around me. I remember the plea at the end, you know, the altar call, when they would have manipulate people by singing just as I am 17 times in a row, and they would offer over and over and over again some emotional plea to pray this prayer and come forward and, and acknowledge Jesus. I remember during those times hearing very vividly motivations to come be Jesus' disciple, being things like, come to Jesus and He will fix your family. Come to Jesus and He will help you get your life in order. Come to Jesus and He will give you that new job. Come to Jesus and your suffering will be done. I'm thinking back now and, 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 and wondering, what is that guy talking about? My problems didn't start until I came to Jesus. It was after I came to Jesus that I lost, you know, I, I, I was captain, uh, not captain, I was inside linebacker of football. You guys know this. I was uh, going scholarship for baseball and football and, and all kinds of stuff. I had great grades, most popular in my high school, most attractive award is what I was given in, in senior, this is what time does, right? Uh, I was most attractive, best personality, all these things, right? Just my life was, on, it was, was in line. It was going exactly where I wanted it to go. And then Jesus comes and he kicks the door in and leaves my life in ruins. And I'm wondering, what, do I, what am I supposed to do with this? Everything prior to Christ was success, success, success. Everything post-Christ has been failure, failure, hardship, trial, pain. So many people will accept the demands to be Christ's disciple if it's on the terms of your life will be easy. Your checkbook will be balanced. You'll always make your bills. Your loved ones won't die. That's a hard one. But we need to understand that Jesus will not accept us. We might accept the call to be his followers on those terms. But Jesus will not accept us to be his followers on those terms. He will not be a means to anyone's end, in other words. Jesus is the end. And if you are seeking or following Jesus for anything other than the simple blessing of knowing him and loving him and having fellowship with him, then he will not allow you to be his disciple. Because that's what discipleship is all about. Now notice how Jesus responds to his disciples' question. In John 1.39, he asks, what are you seeking? They respond, Rabbi, where are you staying? In John 1.39, it says, he said to them, come and you will see. There's the invitation, right? The first time it appears in this section, come and you will see. And here's a really important part to notice. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. They stayed with him that day. Now, 10th hour, there's debate as to whether or not that's 10 o'clock in the morning or 4 o'clock at night. It's really not all that relevant to what's going on here in this passage. Let me explain that. 10 o'clock in the morning would be based on Roman time. Roman timekeeping, which would begin at midnight. That's what we, we stick with. Four o'clock in the afternoon would be based on Hebrew counting of time. 
which I believe that's probably what's going on. Later on in the Gospel of John, you'll find Jesus describing things like, or saying things like, there are 12 hours in a day. Well, that, that's based on like 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Type, type reckoning. Tenth hour would be about 4 p.m. Not relevant right now. All right. But you see what happens here. Because they were seeking Jesus with the right motivation, Jesus welcomes them in. They took a step forward because for some reason they had caught a glimpse of who Jesus is. Something caught their attention in the proclamation of John the Baptist. And the Holy Spirit sparked the fire of a holy curiosity within them. And they sought after Jesus to know and to understand him more. And Jesus then gives them the invitation to come in just a little bit further. And he has fellowship with them. In this account with these two disciples, you and I are offered great hope for the command to draw near and to come and see Jesus Christ for ourselves. With all the truth that will be presented to us in this book, you and I are held accountable to act upon it. You and I are held accountable to respond rightly to it by following Jesus. And if we are seeking him, and if we are following after him with the right motivation, then the blessing that we can expect is that Jesus will welcome us in and have fellowship with us in the same way he welcomed these disciples in and had fellowship with them. Are you with me on that? This passage gives us great hope for following after Jesus and seeking to see him. If he did this with the disciples, will he not do that with us? Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, exactly what we see in Jesus in the accounts of the gospel is what we can expect Jesus to be like here and now. My friend, brothers and sisters and friends, are you sensing a lack in your fellowship with Christ? Is there an absence of his nearness that's taken root in your heart? Something you've known so powerfully in the past that you don't know anymore. Or maybe something you've never known you don't know what it is to have the light of God's countenance shining upon your face. Maybe you need to evaluate your walk in light of these first two steps of true discipleship. Are you genuine, genuinely and sincerely following after Jesus? Or is there hypocrisy in the mix? Is it about saving face or is it about saving faith? Are you genuinely following after Jesus? Not your idea of who Jesus is, but Jesus as he presents himself to us in the scriptures. All the truth that you know in your head and all that you've read about in the Bible, are you responding to that truth appropriately by acting upon it? And, and alongside that, maybe you need to reevaluate why you were seeking Jesus. Are you seeking him for his sake? Right? Do you pray? Do you read the scriptures? Do you seek to obey his will just for him? Or do you do those things in order to gain notoriety, a reputation, recognition from other people? What are you really after in being a disciple of Christ? 
Are you after him or are you after stuff that you think he'll give you? Beloved, if you are like me, you know we are prone to wander. You know how much of a mixture there is of genuine desire in our hearts with really false desires. You know the reality that we're conflicted all the time between the desires of the spirit and the desires of the flesh. But if we will return and draw near to Christ simply for the sake of drawing near to him, to Jesus, he will welcome us in the same way that he welcomed these disciples. Now, as we close, let's notice this one last thing from this account with these two disciples in Jesus. And I have it listed here as the inevitable result of coming and seeing Jesus for yourself. You can come up with a better title, I'm sure, for that. But I have it here as the inevitable result of coming and seeing Jesus for yourself. Notice what we see in verse 40. In John chapter 1, verse 40, we learn that one of these two disciples was named Andrew, right? Now, we, we're not exactly sure who the other one was, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it was John, the, the author of this book, the Apostle John. Because neither John nor James is mentioned in this account, and this would have been around the same time where John and James were called to the Lord. So I believe it was John. But we know that for sure one of these disciples was Andrew. Now, notice what Andrew does immediately after spending this time in fellowship with Christ. What does he do? In John chapter 1, verse 41, it says, He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. In other words, the first thing that Andrew does after becoming convinced of the Messiahship of Jesus was to go and evangelize his brother. Let me point out something from this that I think is very important and helpful from what, for us from what we find here, especially in regard to our evangelism. Look at how Andrew approaches and speaks to Simon. Just put yourself in the scene. Act like you're a fly on the wall and you're just observing this interaction take place between Andrew and Simon Peter. Just imagine Andrew barging into the door, flinging the door open, and just yelling, Simon, Simon, we found the Messiah. Now at that point, Simon Peter could either believe in what he was hearing from Andrew, or he could not believe what he was hearing from Andrew. But there's not a hint at all that Andrew was at all intimidated by the thought that his brother might not believe him. Obviously, Andrew wanted Simon to believe that he truly had found the Messiah. That's why he's there. That's why he's proclaiming it to him. But in a real sense, whether or not Peter believed was not going to change the fact that Andrew had already come to know who the Messiah was for himself. And he knew that it was Jesus. Now, what am I getting at there? Your confidence to share Christ and to tell others about him will flow from one source. And that is your own 
personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Many of us know what it's like to have such confidence in something like what we see in Andrew here. When we've come to know something, to be so sure that it seems like the entire world could be standing against us, telling us that we're wrong, and we still wouldn't bat an eye. It wouldn't change our conviction about the truth in the slightest because we would, we've come to know this truth for ourselves. I don't want to be guilty of reading too much into this. But it seems to me that this is exactly where Andrew was. Just look at the language that's here in, in verse 41. He burst into the house and he says, We have found the Messiah. There's not a speck of doubt in that, in that statement. There's not a moment of hesitation. There's nothing but a strong, sound, even a resilient conviction regarding the truth about Christ that was being manifested in that moment. Now let me ask you, where does that kind of confidence come from? How could he say so dogmatically that there's no question about it, there's no doubt in my mind, we have found the promised one? Well, simply put, it came from Andrew's personal experience with Jesus Christ. And it was through his personal dealings that Jesus, with Jesus that he became absolutely convinced about who Jesus was. All right, let's translate that into today. Let me give you the application and we'll be done. This is where the power to evangelize the lost around us really comes from. Even the power to evangelize the more difficult people in our lives, our family members. Isn't that what Simon is? To Andrew? This is where grace comes from to do effective evangelism with the lost around us. Now pay attention to this. Because some of you need to get it. You need to understand this. Your effectiveness in evangelism and standing for Christ in this world is not a matter of mastering a certain method. It's not about getting evangelism explosion or the way of the master mastered so that you can then use it in, in, in evangelizing someone else. That is not the secret to effective evangelism. It's not in uh, mastering a certain method. It's not in approaching people with some kind of specific strategy or facts or figures. As useful as those things might be at times, all of that can still be done in a cold, calculated, lifeless manner. And it can even worse than that, it can still be done in a manner that is putting faith in the method and not faith in Christ. Real and true spirit-given power to evangelize the lost is granted to us through our personal knowledge and experience of Jesus as God's chosen and appointed Messiah. And without that personal interaction with the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not have strength to stand for Him in this culture. You will not do it. Why do you think we have so many of the doctrinally reformed people all around us falling to the wayside, capitulating to the culture? It's because their knowledge of Christ is not based upon their own experience with Him. It's based upon what someone else told them. This is the problem with American Christianity. We've lost the basics. 
We've cut out the spiritual reality of Christianity and we've substituted in its place our methods and our programs and our buildings and our stuff. And we've totally cut ourselves off from Christ. This is the problem. I'm sorry, I don't mean to yell. I just... I love you and I want you to get it. I want you to understand this. I want this church to be a healthy expression of a true church of Jesus Christ. I want Christ to be lifted high here with spirit and truth. And that doesn't come from nominalism. And it doesn't come from flat preaching either. You remember, what, you remember what Jesus told that man whom he had healed from that tyranny of the legion of demons? Luke 8. After the Gerasene people were terrified when they saw what Jesus had done with that demon possessed man. They couldn't do anything with him. They couldn't bind him with chains. They couldn't keep clothes on him. They just let him stay out in the graveyard and just dwell among the tombs. Just leave that guy alone. And here comes Jesus in all his glorious power, his saving majesty, and he sets this man free from a legion of demons. The people were terrified by that. They begged Jesus to leave. And the man whom Jesus had delivered came up and begged that he might go with Jesus. And Jesus said to him, I know that you want to come with me, but here's what I want from you. Return to your house and go tell all the people about the great things God has done for you. Now pay attention to what Jesus said there and don't reinterpret it according to what you think he should have said. Jesus did not say, go tell them about God. He said to this man, go tell them about what God has done for you. Go give them a praise-filled living witness to the power of God in your own life. And so listening to Jesus, it says that the man went his way, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Now look at that. That's a nice transference, right? Go tell them what God's done for you. And he goes around and he tells everyone what Jesus did for him. That means that in his personal interactions with Jesus, this man came to know the saving power of God. And he had a testimony to declare to the world around him about what his God had done for him. Guys, this is where the power of evangelism comes from. I wonder if Jesus came to you and said, I want you to go back to your home and I want you to go tell everyone what I have done for you. I wonder what we would say. What would we have to say? Is our relationship with Christ rich enough that we would actually have something to share with those around us. If they asked us, you believe that God is real? Tell me, what has He done in your life? Give me one thing that this God of yours has done in your life. Would any of us have any kind of witness to bear in that moment? 
Are you in such a relationship with Him that at a drop of a hat, you're ready to share the wondrous things that God's doing in your life? That your relationship with Christ is not mere rote religion and formalities and rituals. It's not a checkbox on a reading list. It's not saying a form of a prayer. It's actually interacting with the living person of Jesus Christ. Do you have that? That's what this man had. That's what Andrew had. And that's what gave him the power to evangelize those around him, including his brother. Now, I'm closing. I am. I am. You got to get this. There is no substitute for that. There's no substitute for a living relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what prayer, and this is what Bible study, and this is what scripture memory, and this is what fellowship in the church with the people of God, this is what walking in holiness, this is what it's all about. It's not about simply doing those things so that we can say that we've done them. It's about doing those things as a means of having fellowship with Jesus. So if in your Bible reading in the morning it's just dead and flat and dry, what you need to do is rather than just finishing the reading, checking it off the box and saying, well, I did my duty for the day, what you need to do is take the reality of where your heart is in that moment and take it to Jesus and say, Lord, I'm seeking for you. I'm trying to find you in this, but I'm not sensing your nearness. I have no idea where you are. There's nothing on this page that's standing out to me. Make it live. Do what only you can do. Change me for the glory of your name. Send me forth with power of knowing you. It's those who know their God who will stand. And, and, and what does the old version say? Do exploits. It's those who know their God who will stand and take action. So Lord, help me know you as I'm reading this scripture passage right here. Help me know you. And help me walk in the knowledge of you the rest of the day. That translates to everything. That translates to prayer time. That translates to fellowship with the saints in the home. That translates to what we're doing here in our corporate gatherings of fellowship among the saints. Guys, I'm, I'm, I'm so tired of living under the gray curtain of the world. Aren't you? Aren't you sick of the pressure of the world around us and what it's doing to our perspective of God and what it means to be a faithful Christian? My hope, my hope is that at the end of this study in the Gospel of John, however long that takes, my hope is that at the end of this study, you and I would be able to declare with the same conviction of Andrew to whoever may ask, we have found the Messiah. My prayer is that like John, we would be able to say with a true and a full heart, we've beheld His glory. Won't you come? Come and see His glory with us. This is, this is, this is where I'm going. When I wrote that, I, I thought, I need to make a resolution at this point. This is where I'm going. 
I'm tired of being bogged down by the world. I'm tired of looking around at everything and thinking it's all hopeless, it's all lost, and I'm just, let's just hole up and let it all pass, and maybe one day we'll see the coming of Jesus. I'm so tired of living like that. Aren't you? Here's my resolution. This is where I'm going. I am going to press after the Lord Jesus Christ so that I might know him. So that I would know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his sufferings. I'm going to press after knowing Jesus Christ every day so that on that last day I would be found in him. That's what Christianity is. That's what it's all about. Who's coming with me? Who's going to come with me? Who's going to do this with me? Because your faith cannot rest upon what I do. Won't you come with me? Please come with me. Let's go together. Let's press after Christ together. Let's get out of the mold of, of what we think we ought to be and get busy being what we're supposed to be. Are you ready to devote yourself to Christ like that? You know, to be honest, some of you aren't ready for that. Because you're holding on to too much stuff in the world. You've got the cares and the worries and the pleasures of this world that you're holding on to. And not only does that prevent you from grabbing on more tightly to Jesus Christ, it also weighs you down and keeps you from being able to run the race set before you. My friend, listen to me. If you will not let go of the stuff that is keeping you back from living all of your life to Jesus, then you will perish with that stuff in hell. There's only one seed, there's only one soil among the four that was actually praised by Christ, and it was not those that began to show signs early on, but then were choked out. It's those who actually bore fruit with the message of the gospel. So what do you need to let go of in order to chase down and follow after Christ? What is it? Husbands, what do you need to do in order to be a faithful Christ follower as a husband in your home? Wives, what do you need to do? Children, what do you need to do to be faithful to Christ as children in your home? Singles, how can you use your singleness to be a faithful and more devoted follower of Christ where you are? Old, young, we all have a role to play. We all have a part to play. And you will find the strength and the power and the confidence in Christ to do your part only as you have personal dealings with Christ as your Lord and your Messiah. So may the Lord give us grace to come to him and to see him and then to serve him together. Would you pray with me? Words fail. Lord, words fail and desires are fleeting. Lord, among all that's been done here this morning, I pray that you would ignite in our hearts a true and holy love for your name. Lord, those who have come to know you before in the past, those whom you have brought to saving faith in your beloved Son, Father, 
Would you please revive them in the truth and renew within them holy zeal to pursue you all the more. Lord, those who have never come to know you, who have not yet decided to follow you with a resolute heart, I pray that today would be that day of salvation for them, Lord. That they would not wait for another because today is the day of salvation and we are not guaranteed tomorrow. So Lord, please, by your spirit, ignite our hearts and awaken faith within us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, now for the benediction from Colossians 2, 8 through 10. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. So be taken up with Christ and enjoy your completeness in him. May you go in the peace of the Lord Jesus. Amen.